Well, good morning and welcome to Central. Uh, I have the privilege this morning of introducing you to someone who has shaped my thinking and has transformed uh, how I see the world. This is Dr. Paul Chamberlain. He is from Trinity Western University, Axe Seminary. Can we give him a warm welcome? About 30 years ago, he was one of my professors. I know he doesn't look that old, and I do, but that's a different story. Uh, one of my professors, he actually helped me learn how to think and to think critically. So this morning, we're going to ask you to put on your thinking caps as we address the topic about science and faith. And does science refute faith? That's really the topic. Uh, Paul has some books in the foyer. If you uh, find the topic intriguing, he's going to explain a little bit more about that. But they're there available for you. And we're going to pray and then give ourselves to discovering new things this morning. Father, thank you for my friend, my brother, uh, my teacher, Paul. And as he shares with us this morning and um, helps us to think about the wonder of creation and how you fit in, as we explore the topic of science and faith, would you pour out your favor on him? Would you help us to hear clearly, to embrace the truths that he brings, and to be all the more confident that you are the creator of all things, and all things are under your control. So I pray your blessing on my friend. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you. Thank you very much, Ron. And thank you all for, for, for being here, and thank you for having me. I guess you would normally be here, but thank you for having me. And my wife, Gail, is right back here somewhere. Now, where is she now? She is at the, in, is she, it's right over here, waving her hand right here. Uh, and uh, so she's, she's hung with me for 40 years, including coming here this morning. And uh, so it's always great when she's able to come. I, I just feel like, well, you know what, Ron and I, it's not just that Ron was a student back there about 20, 28 to 7 years ago or whatever it was. He was a memorable student. I still remember the presentation he gave. It was on a philosopher whose name is J.L. Mackey, a British philosopher. So Ron could not do the presentation without putting on the accent of J.L. Mackey. And that stood out to me back then. I still remember the presentation to this day. And uh, you, you can't say that about that many students. So I have always appreciated Ron. I just do feel like one of the first things I should do is commend you all and your church leadership for being a risk-taking church. You must be a risk-taker because having sp uh, guest speakers in, I think, is a risky business. You never really know what you got till the person's up there, and then it could well be too late. Uh, and so I always feel quite uh, privileged to be invited as a guest speaker. I did hear one story about a guest speaker who was invited to come. And he was given exactly 30 minutes to speak. I don't have quite that rigid a time frame, but, but I still have a time frame, don't I, Ron? Uh, but but the third, this, this one was given 30 minutes. Well, he, he stood up and he, he got going. 30 minutes came and went, and he was going strong. And no, no, no sign of slowing down. 45 minutes came and went, still no sign of slowing down. An hour came, and he was still up there preaching strong. And the, the person who brought the, the MC who brought the meeting to order was sitting back here, and he was thinking, well, I need to somehow address this situation. So he, he thought, I'll do it the discreet way first. He took a little piece of paper and wrote the words on it, please stop. And he walked up and he put them in front of the speaker. Speaker took that piece of paper, threw it down on the floor, just kept right on going. Fifteen more minutes came and went, still no sign of slowing down whatsoever. Speaker said, well, look, I've got to take this matters into my own hands here. I've got to get this thing to, get this thing to an end. So he grabbed the gavel that he had used to bring the meeting to order. And he wound up from back behind the speaker and just wound up and threw the gavel at the speaker. But he missed the speaker. And it came right forward and hit a little old lady right in the front row. Uh, and uh, uh, and yeah, it, was, it was sad. And the, and the, and the, the lady was a little bit dazed. She kind of went down and she got back up again a little bit. People rushed to help her. And she looked up and she said, opened her eyes and said, hit me again, I can still hear him. Okay? <laughs> 
Now you see, that's the risk you take when you have a guest speaker come in. So I always feel quite uh, thankful to be invited as a guest speaker and, and uh, I, want, I, want to, I want to commend you for it as well. As Rhonda said, I teach at Trinity Western University. We have something there called an Institute for Christian Apologetics I've been working with for a while. Uh, and uh, uh, that's it, it, kind of what we're doing here this morning in a, in a, in a more broad sense. Uh, Christian apologetics, I mean, it's an odd-sounding term, though, isn't it? Christian apologetics. What does it sound like you're doing when you're involved in Christian apologetics? Kind of learning how to, to say, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. I won't let that happen again, or something along that line. It's actually not that. The word uh, apologetics is an old classical word from, from, from uh, evil. It goes back to the days back to the New Testament, and even, even hundreds of years before that as well. The Greek word is apologia. It means, it means defense. That's the fundamental idea behind the word apologetic is defense. And I always tell our students that Christian apologetics is really nothing more than developing our skills in how to share and communicate our Christian faith to those around us in a way that's accurate, in a way that's relevant or appealing, and in a way that's credible or defensible. And it seems to me there's few things in life that are more rewarding and more exciting than doing that. And there's a variety of ways of doing it as well. Ron has mentioned the privilege I've had of writing a few books over the years, and there are some back there. Let me just tell you what's in them very briefly, so in case some of, our, some of them will be of value to you, you can go back and, and check them out. The first one that I have ever had the privilege of writing is called, Can We Be Good Without God? It rolls from a debate I was involved in up at UBC with an atheist philosopher there, and this was the name of the debate. And so that's why we get the name, put the name on the book. But it addresses two questions just as the, as the debate did. Number one, well, the first question is, is there such a thing as real, objective, moral truth out there? Or is morality a purely relative, subjective thing? So that what can be, what can be morally right for you may be morally wrong for me in the same, same situations. Uh, and that was the first question. Interestingly enough, both the atheist professor and I agreed there is objective moral truth. So if you were there as a moral relativist, you had nobody championing your cause that day at all. But the second question of the debate was, well, if that's the case, then what foundation must there be for objective moral value? Do, must there be a God, a transcendent God as a foundation? Of course, being the atheist, he said no. To that I said yes, and we had our exchange. And, when I, and it was a good exchange as well. And when I got back, I realized, well, there's more than two views on that question. And so the, this book is a dialogue between five different people, each holding a different view on those same two questions. Is there such a thing as real objective moral value? And if so, is, what foundations required? Can we be good without God? So that, that was that's, that, that one. A little bit after that, I was in my office one day minding my own business, and I got a phone call inviting me to debate the member of parliament, Sven Robinson. Some of you know him. I know of him. He's running for office again, as you probably are well aware. But he was out for a little while. But at the time, he was, he was promoting very hard the legalization of physician-assisted suicide, now called medical assistance in dying. It has now been legalized in Canada, and that, that's, uh, that's where it's gone. This is a book that deals with that. At the same time as Sven Robinson was promoting that, and he was spending time with a woman whose name is Sue Rodriguez. Some of you may remember that name. My mother had MS, multiple sclerosis. Sue Rodriguez had ALS disease. Uh, and so she was in, in a sad, sad condition at that point, when, in, that, in that condition. But my mother had MS, and I watched her over the years as this disease uh, t took its toll on her life. And I realized, oh, just some, some people like that are the ones who opt for a physician-assisted suicide, now called MAID and medical assistance in dying. So this, again, is a book that addresses that issue. It looks at both sides of the issue as carefully as we can, because I as far as I was concerned, the media was good at pointing out one side, but never very good at pointing out the other. 
And so this book is an attempt to bring both. Here's another one, talk, the third one, talking about good and bad without getting ugly. I'm not sure if, if this, did, did this come from Clint Eastwood, from one of his movies? I thought he had a movie, something like that, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh, actually, this, this is a, a, not the title I sent in. I sent in a different title, and the, and the publisher preferred this one. Because the book is all about engaging others on moral questions, on difficult moral questions. How do we engage others? For instance, when someone says to, to, to you, you know, you are religious, right? And you say, well, I, I do go to church. Well, that's what I mean. And so... You have your certain moral views or your religious views. You certainly can have a right to hold them, but you have no right to impose them on the rest of us. Anybody heard that kind of thing said? It's pretty common in our culture. Well, is there a grain of truth to that? But what do we say about that? How do we respond when someone says that? So we have to actually have a full chapter, Thou Shall Not Impose, and, and uh, some other uh, chapters on issues like that. So that's what this one, this one is. Then this one here came a little later, Why People Don't Believe. This one addresses what I consider to be one of the more pressing apologetic challenges still facing us today, and that is it's coming from a group called the New Atheists. How many have heard that term, New Atheism? The question is, how are they different from old-fashioned atheists? What's the difference here? Well, atheists have always believed religion, including Christianity, is flawed and mistaken because it believes there's a God, and the atheist says there's no God. Uh, New Atheists go further. Their contention is that religion and Christianity are not simply flawed and mistaken, but they're dangerous. They're a force for evil in the world. You say, well, how? Well, they get people to fly planes into buildings, to blow themselves up in suicide bombings, to blow up abortion clinics, because they believe God told them to do it, leaving the rest of us completely uh, uh, with no, no way of, of stopping that. What are you going to say to someone who believes God told them to do something? Uh, and, and so that, that's the cha- challenge, and many of them have made very strong statements. Well, this book is a book to understand that, where that a new atheist is coming from and to address it, raise some of the, the big questions about it. So I took a sabbatical and worked on this one called Why People Don't Believe. The last one here, a different, similar title, but quite a different book, Why People Stop Believing. How many of you had no people who used to believe but no longer do. I'll bet many of you do, because I certainly do. How many of you know people who were leaders in the Christian community, maybe pastors, maybe, maybe teachers in the Christian community, and now they walked away as well? And some of them declare themselves to be atheists, and they become some of Christianity's most ardent critics, and sometimes most well-known, well-informed, more knowledgeable critics as well. And they write books and set up websites, giving testimonials as to why they left and why they were duped before. And I came across this, and some people I knew fit this category, and they had written very effective books, as far as I was concerned. And so I I took another sabbatical a little later and worked on this one, Why People Stop Believing. So this one is a book to to address that issue and find out why are people telling us that they felt they had to leave, and are these reasons as as compelling as as they say they are. So at the back, we use cash, checks, uh, credit card as well, if there are books that are of, of value to you back there. Our topic this morning is a really intriguing one, and I think highly, highly relevant for our society, and I really commend your church. So your church is the one who, the leadership here is the one who developed this question, and we worked on it together, and they've, they've asked us to address it. And the question is, does science point to God? Or does science, when science does research on our creation, on nature, does it point to God? Well, I wonder what you think about that. 
because it certainly is a relevant question given the prominence of science in our culture. Very few things have as much prestige in our, in our society as, as science. I remember having given a lecture at UBC one time, just a public lecture, and I got all done. And a young man strode forward. He, he didn't walk, he strode, and he was an all-out atheist, very hostile to me. Many, um, many people like that you meet aren't that way, but he was. And he came and said, you know what? There's two things I can't stand in this world. And I said, what's that? Christianity was one, and philosophy was the other. Well, my PhD is in philosophy, and I was there representing Christianity. So I was pretty well nailed on both counts. I said, so what are you into? Guess what his answer was? Science. That's where we find truth? Yeah. And so we had about a 15, 20-minute conversation because he believed he could disprove Christianity just like that, okay? 15, 20 minutes later, I don't think he'd done it yet, but we had an interesting conversation together. And I was really intrigued because I came back and told my colleague at Trinity Western, Dr. Philip Weeb, who just a few, we just buried a few months ago, sadly, but it was a very uh, effective professor at Trinity, and I shared that story with him, and he said, you know that, that's exactly where I used to be. Science was, was king. Uh, and, and, and many people, for many people in our, in our society, science has great prestige. Uh, and, so, and so we'll clamor to make everything we can compatible with science because science is, is, is king in our, in our culture. Well, the question is, given that, it's a good question to ask. Does it point to God? Well, interestingly enough, the psalmist sure thought so, didn't he? Listen to what the psalmist said back in Psalm 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. You've probably all read this. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands, Psalm 19.1. In fact, the psalmist was so sure he didn't even say, this has happened at some grand moment in the past. You notice the wording there. The heavens proclaim, present tense, their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. In other words, it's an ongoing thing. Look up there anytime you want, and the message is being declared. That's what the psalmist said. And he wasn't alone. Listen to how Paul put it in the book of Romans when talking. He, he, began, he turned his attention to people who were outside the Jewish nation, the, the surrounding nations who didn't have the scriptures, didn't have the prophets giving messages from God. And, the, and you have to wonder, well, how were they ever supposed to come to know about God? Listen to what Paul says, his words, about these people. He says, what may be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God made it plain to them. How? He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, things you can't see, he goes on to say what they are, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. In other words, creation is what is telling the story, and he finally can end up by saying so that people are without excuse. You see what he's saying there? God is seen in creation. That's what Paul is saying. His eternal power, his divine nature, they're seen there. Creation points to God. And the bottom line from that passage is, it's a very serious point too, that no one can ever say to God, I had no way of knowing about you. Because God has seen to it that he's made himself known throughout his creation. Well, at least that's what the psalmist said, isn't it? That's what Paul said. But the question here for us today is, were they right? Or could it be, as plenty of people in our society think, that science, our universe, point in the opposite direction, toward an atheistic universe, one that does not include a divine mind or a divine person standing behind it. As we're probably aware, there are plenty of people out there who take that position. Some of them work in science, 
Some of them don't. So what I'd like us to do this morning is just a couple things here. Let's hear from a few in the field of science who answered that question, no. Science does not point to God. Let's catch a glimpse of just how passionately some people feel that way and get some idea of that. And then secondly, let's turn our attention to some signs in creation and science which point to God. And, and here's some other people in the field of science who, 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 who are, argue it that way. So let's look at the, 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 the first, take the first one. Some people say, no, science does not point to God. Who are they? Why do they say it? Well, you can hardly go, uh, get past this point without mentioning the name Richard Dawkins. How many of you know the name Richard Dawkins? He's probably the world's most well-known atheist at the present moment. He's a British scientist, a biologist. Uh, um, he sometimes wears a t-shirt that says, religion, and then the colon. Together, we can find the cure. Okay? So you can see he obviously doesn't care much for religion. He's written a book called The God Delusion. How many have seen that book? You know about that book, The God Delusion. Uh, if you've seen that one, have you also seen uh, Alistair McGrath's little response to that book called The Dawkins Delusion? Anybody seen that? Because I would really encourage you, if you're going to read one, it's really wise to read the other. Because Alistair McGrath has is, is, is equivalent credentials. He's a, he's a philosopher and a scientist at Oxford, and he knows Richard Dawkins. The two of them know each other. You can see on YouTube them interacting together in different places. And so he's written a book to respond to it. But, but, the, the, but the point is, look what Richard Dawkins says. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is no design, no purpose, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. What's his point there? He couldn't be really much clearer. Our universe does not point toward a purposeful God behind it. There is nothing else out there. The universe is just as we would expect it if there's no God out there. That's Richard Dawkins. Let's turn to another one real quickly, Lawrence Krauss. Maybe some of you haven't heard his name as well. He's another well-known scientist, however, and he works at Arizona State University, and he's made this statement. 500 years of science have demonstrated that God, that vague notion, he says, of God, is not likely. And then a little later in the same exchange, he says this, science has taught us we don't need God to exist. Coming from Lawrence Krauss. What's his point? Science does not point to God. In fact, if anything, it teaches us the opposite, that we have no need for God. That's coming from Lawrence Krauss. Well, let me give one more person here, Carl Sagan. As you'll see, he's a pretty, he's a pretty happy guy. Uh, and, I mean, he died now, but, but uh, I'll bet many of you have heard the name Carl Sagan, haven't you? A pretty well-known American astronomer, a, co a cosmologist, but he was a popularizer of many scientific concepts. He wrote things which the average person would read, but maybe we're not aware of the fact that he was also an outspoken atheist. Uh, and notice the, the simple statement that he makes. The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. It's hard to miss the point, isn't it? The universe does not point to God or any cause standing behind it. Why? Because there is nothing else out there. The universe is just all there is. Now, what's the point of all this? The point is just this, that as far as these folks are concerned, science most certainly does not point to God. In fact, if anything, it points in the opposite direction. It's hard to miss where they're, where they're coming from. But not everybody sees it that way, including some other first-rate scientists. And in fact, some very impressive people in the field of science find their scientific discoveries and their research pointing toward God in the most fascinating ways. And it's really interesting for us to see that. So let's look at a few signs from creation and from science that point to God, and we'll see how this, these are put by people working in the field of science. Sign number one is this. The very existence of our universe points to God. 
The very existence of our universe points to God. Now, at first blush, this seems kind of like an obvious point, doesn't it? It hardly needs mentioning. I mean, if the universe came into existence, then, then it must have a cause, right? There's nothing more, there's nothing more than a, an example of a simple, well-known maxim, out of nothing, nothing comes. Or maybe you've heard it in Latin, ex nihilo, nihil fit. It's a pretty well-known English phrase now as well. It's just a simple statement of the very obvious idea that things don't pop into existence out of nothing. If something came into existence, there must be a cause. It must be adequate and powerful enough to bring that entity into existence. But you see, right here is where science, I think, is so helpful to us. Because it asks questions exactly like this. Scientists are very interested in asking the question, how did our universe come to be? Did it have a beginning? What was that like? And most of us probably know, maybe some of you know, I'll, I'll bet some here do, that the current widely accepted theory, sometimes called the cosmology, about how the world came into being is called Big Bang Cosmology. How many of you have heard the term Big Bang before? I'll bet most of us have heard that term. Sometimes we're not sure what to make of it. But, but according to, to Big Bang Cosmology, which is widely accepted in the scientific community, according to it, um, the, the, the universe, our universe, came into being a finite time ago in what scientists refer to as a Big Bang. In other words, while there's some debate about when this occurred, there's very little debate about the fact that it happened that way. And I think it's very intriguing for Christians. But much of our, but you must say, well, how do we know about this? How do we hear about, how do we, how do we come to this conclusion that things started with a Big Bang? Well, interestingly, much of our knowledge of this goes back to the discovery by a person whose name I bet many of us know, the name Edwin Hubble. How many of you know that name? Have you, have you heard of the Hubble telescope? He's the person whose name is associated with that. Way back in 1929, Edwin Hubble was peering through his very powerful telescope that he had constructed at the time, far off into the distance, way back then. And he began to see something which is now widely accepted, but at the time no one had thought of it before. And that is this, the universe is expanding. The, the planets and the stars are moving further apart from each other, much like a balloon blowing up. And Edwin Hubble, when he took this to other scientists, they all began to realize that that means that if you wound the tape backwards, in other words, if you went back in time, that would mean that the, the, the universe would be, would be uh, become, becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, eventually getting to a point which was now come to be called infinite density infinite density, from which the entire process of expansion began with the Big Bang. Well, you see, that's a pretty interesting discovery, isn't it? Because it's, it's one key indication that our universe had a beginning that it, that it, and, and, and that there, therefore came from somewhere. In fact, interestingly enough, as one uh, well-known astronomer from Cambridge University, Fred Hoyle, comes right out and says, think of his statement here, Big Bang cosmology, he says, requires, and catch these words, the creation of matter from nothing. How about that? Creation of matter from nothing. How can he say those words? Well, because, and notice his words again, if you go back far enough, the universe was shrunk down to nothing at all. Isn't that interesting? Because the term is infinite density. Well, the only question remaining then is if that's the case, what does that mean for our universe? What does it mean for us? Does the universe need a cause? Well, most of us are well aware the things which begin to exist must have causes. In other words, out of nothing, nothing comes. 
Now, I was really intrigued one day to hear how one well-known and well-regarded atheistic philosopher acknowledged this very point. His name is Kai Nielsen. Maybe some of you haven't heard his name, but one of, one of, one of, probably one of the more prolific uh, atheists as far as for terms of his writing is concerned. He was a professor at University of Calgary for a long time, and now he's down in the U.S., the last I heard. But I watched him in a, in a meeting with a big crowd of people. It was actually in the middle of a debate he was having with Dr. William Lane Craig. And he was speaking at the moment to all these people. And he made an interesting point. He said, you know, let's, let's just imagine we're sitting in this room together. And suddenly out in the hallway, we hear a loud bang. And we all stop. And somebody, some of you, one of you says to me, hey, what caused that bang? And suppose I just said, nothing. It just happened. He says, you would not accept that reply, would you? In fact, he says, and these are his words, you would find my reply quite unintelligible. That's an inter interesting way to say that, you know what, I think he's right. And all we're saying is here today that if it applies to the loud bangs out in the hallway, it applies to the big bangs as well. It applies to little bangs, it applies to big bangs as well. Well, when it comes to the cause of our universe, just think with me for a moment just how immensely powerful this cause would need to be. Have you thought about the, the sheer size and dimensions of our universe and the galaxies? The Milky Way which is the galaxy which contains our solar system. Some of you may know this already, but it contains how many stars? 100 to 400 billion stars, of which the sun is just one. In terms of its size, the Milky Way is 150,000 to 200,000 light years in diameter, light years. Remember, a light second is 186,000 miles. Now, that, that just means that if you could travel that fast at the speed of light, it would take you 150,000 years to go from one end of the galaxy to the other. And, and bear this in mind, the Milky Way is only one of approximately 100 billion galaxies that we know about. See, when I start hearing figures like this, my, my head begins to explode. I just can't get those kind of figures in my mind. Um, I can't my mind get around them very well. But remember again, if little bangs don't happen on their own, then why would we think big ones do? Let me go to a second sign that, that, uh, that points toward God, and that is this. The fine-tuning of the universe points toward God. Now, how many of you have heard this term fine-tuning before in, in relation to our, to our world, to our universe? We use the term for other things as well. What are we talking about when we talk about the fine-tuning tuning of the universe? Well, it just means this in a very simple way. When the Big Bang exploded and the universe came into being, it did not produce some big blob of, uh, of, of unorganized material. On the contrary, the Big Bang produced a universe which is very special, and in a way that is specifically conducive to human existence, almost like someone planned it that way. It's a very fascinating concept, the fine-tuning of the universe. And you know what I find really interesting about it? It is widely accepted among the scientific community. Listen, I'm always intrigued how, say, someone like who, who, who might be a scientist who's also an atheist would, would, would make the same thing. And, and, and let me, let me let's point out here this morning how one person just like that, his name is Dr. Leonard, Leonard Susskind, makes the same point. Leonard Susskind is a professor of physics at Stanford University. And he's well known because he's one of, the, one of the pioneers of what's sometimes called string theory. Some of you may have heard of that. But here's how Leonard Susskind, as an atheist, puts it. Look at his words now. now. Listen to his words. The laws of physics, he says, and of cosmology, and of how the universe evolved, are very special in a way that is unexpected, in a way that seems to be very, very conducive to our own existence. 
This is Leonard Susskind saying this, and he goes on to say, these laws could have been different. For example, you can imagine a world that did not even include the electron, no electrons. You can imagine a world that way. Uh, but he said there would be nothing wrong with that in terms of the basic mathematical theory of physics. But he says if you had no electron, guess what else you wouldn't have? No atoms, no chemistry, no biology, and of course, guess what else? No people. None of us would be here. He, he, he takes another example, gravity. We all know about gravity. It pulls us down. It pulls us in. But we may not be, what we may not be well aware of is that people in his business look at gravity and realize it's very, very weak. In fact, he says it's virtually negligible. It raises the question, he says, why is gravity so much weaker than the other forces? Well, his answer is, we don't know. But we do know that if it were even a tiny bit stronger, guess what would happen? Stars would burn out too quickly for life to involve. Instead of stars and galaxies, we'd have black holes. And of course, he says we can't live in those, except in science fiction. The bottom line point, he, and this is the point made by Leonard Susskind, everything seems to be almost on a knife edge. If you were to change the laws of physics even a little bit, the world as we know would, would, not, would not exist. There's one other one he seems to be particularly taken with, sometimes called the cosmological constant. This is one of the maybe many of us have not heard about. He says it's really, really a balance on a knife edge. What is the cosmological constant? He says, that, well, it's a kind of anti-gravity. Think of gravity which pulls in. The cosmological constant is a force that pushes out. It's got a repulsive force. It pushes rather than pulls. It's here in the universe too. But what Leonard Susskind found so stunning about this is that this force, the cosmological constant, is so infinitesimally small way smaller than the mathematical calculation tell us it should be, that it takes an enormous space for it even to be felt at all. And then he asks the question, why is it so small? Why is this repulsive force called the cosmological constant so small? And notice his answer, speaking as an atheist scientist. He says, well, it's this tiny because whoever or whatever made the universe, he says with a chuckle, made it this way. The chances of it becoming this way, he says, are 10 in the power to the power of 123, way out there. Now, the point is, he says, nobody really knows why, but here's what we do know, that if it were much stronger, it would have blasted apart the galaxies, it would have pushed them apart, prevented stars from forming, prevented our existence. You see, the point of this is that, bottom, that the bottom line for, for when I think about this is that fine-tuning is widely agreed in the scientific community. It, it's, it's virtually undeniable. And the only question is, well, what does it all mean? How do we explain a thing like that? Well, here's how one scientist, uh, astrophysicist, he's, a, he's at Arizona, Arizona State University as well, he answers this question of what it means as well as anyone, I think. And he says this, and he's writing as a Christian who's a scientist. He says, there is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. I find that very intriguing. I, I, really, I really agree with this statement there. Let me go to a third sign that points toward God from, from, from science and from creation, and that is this, and it may be one we haven't thought about as much, but there's the existence of human intelligence points to God. Have we thought about that before? The existence of human intelligence. Think of these words from John Lennox. How many of you have heard of John Lennox before? He's a professor of uh, mathematics and philosophy of science at Oxford University. He says this, thinking of human intelligence, our, our thought processes, 
Either human intelligence owes its origin to mindless matter, or there is a creator. There's your choices. Either human intelligence comes from mindless matter, or there is a creator. And then he goes on to add, it's strange that some people claim that it is their intelligence that leads them to prefer the first to the second. He kind of gets a little bit of a kick, chuckle out of that one. Now, what, but we'll notice this point here. The point he's raising is, I think, a very interesting question. The question of not simply how things in general came to be, because that's a really good question as well. Why is there anything at all? How did anything come to be to start with? But he raises this question, how a special kind of thing came to be. Things which think, things which know, things which believe, things which doubt, with work, which work with ideas. In other words, minds. How did minds come into being? Can a mind be produced by mindless matter? And John Lennox simply answers the question. The fact the existence of human intelligence is far better explained by an intelligent creator, in other words, a cosmic, eternal mind, than by pure, mindless matter. And again, I find myself in full agreement with that, with that kind of statement. Let me go to sign number four here, signpost. And that is this. The existence of human DNA points to God. The existence of human DNA, the human genome. Now, perhaps this is a topic where we may feel, yeah, we don't, I don't really know that much about that. And that could be true. The fact is we probably all know something about it, and I would imagine we, we probably heard something about the human genome in the news over recent years, uh, because it's been in the news. And maybe there are a few of you here in the room who are more well-versed on this subject. But just imagine with me doing this, taking a stroll along the beach in White Rock, okay? Actually, as I happen to be doing tomorrow, hope to be doing tomorrow. That's, what I, that's what one, a bit of a plan I've got in, my, in for my day tomorrow. Take a stroll along the beach in White Rock. Beautiful sunny day. You've just enjoyed fish and chips, maybe Moby Dick's, wherever you get your fish and chips when you're there, okay? Suddenly you see carved in the sand right where you're walking your name, your first name, your last name, and there it is. Below that, a brief message welcoming you to White Rock. Suppose you see that carved in the sand. What would you think? Perhaps you might say, well, amazing how the wind blew the sand in just such a way or, or the water flowed into the sand in just such a way that these words and these shapes appeared in just that way. I mean, there's lots of other little ruts and grooves in the sand, and they were put there by wind and water washing over it, and of course the grooves and the ruts had to, had to form some way. You might say that. But you know what? I actually doubt many of us in this room would say that. If it was your name or my name and a welcome greeting on it, I'll bet most of us would have trouble believing that that's how those shapes and words came to be because there's something different about them, isn't there? What's the difference between these ruts and grooves and these ones over here? You know the difference? They contain information. They contain ideas. Well, listen to these words again by John Lennox, the Oxford University professor, although you could quote others here as well. He says this, we have only to see a few letters of the alphabet spelling our name in the sand. It's his illustration. He's the one who came up with this. We have only to see that a few letters of the alphabet spelling our name in the sand to recognize at once the work of an intelligent agent. And then he puts this question to us based on that. How much more likely then is the existence of an intelligent creator behind human DNA, the colossal biological database that contains no fewer than 3.5 billion letters? He calls it the longest word yet discovered. You see his point here? The point is this, that the existence of human DNA, which contains information, ideas, points, to an intelligent creator behind it in a far greater way than a few words written in the sand. 
Notice with me here the words of one of the world's best-known scientists at the moment who makes precisely this point, Francis Collins. How many of you have heard of Francis Collins before? He's written a very intriguing book, and I think, I think some of you would really enjoy the book, called The Language of God. Um, but, but Francis Collins knows more about the human DNA and the human genome than most of us ever will because he was the leader of the Human Genome Project which for the first time in history mapped out and revealed the, the entire human DNA sequence in order to understand our own genetic structure in a way that we never had before. This was all completed in 2003. Notice what Francis Collins says. For me, he says, the experience of sequencing the human genome and uncovering this most remarkable of all texts was both a stunning scientific achievement and an occasion of worship. You see, because Francis Collins is not just a prominent leading scientist, he's also a Christian. He wasn't a Christian when he first began, by the way. He was a practicing medical doctor and scientist before he became a Christian. He became one later on. And for him, human DNA points directly back to the eternal person, the eternal mind, who wrote it. Notice his wonderful way, I think, of bringing together God and science. I think that if we could put it together like this, I think we, we really would have figured this thing out properly. Here's what he says. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. It's the same God. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic. It is awesome. It is intricate and it is beautiful. And it cannot be at war with itself. So back to our question. Does science point to God? I think the answer is, well, the signs are all around us, if we want to see them. The heavens really do declare the glory of God. His divine power, his eternal nature really are seen in the things he has made, as it says in Romans chapter 1. I think this, and today when we're, we're addressing this topic like this, is a day to thank our God that he's gone to great lengths to make himself known to the people he created, the people he loves. Not just through his word. Not just through his son, not just through his miracles, his mighty acts, but also through the things he has made. Thank you very much, and God, God bless you. Let, let's bow to for, in, for a moment of prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we do have very clear words from you in the scriptures, of course. But when we look up into the, into the sky, when we look at creation around us, there are also signs that you've left for us there. They're there for us to see. And I thank you that you put them there and given us minds to see them and eyes to see them as well. I pray that your spirit will open up our minds and soften us if we have any resistance to this so we can see. By looking at the works of creation and nature, we can be led up to the author of, the, of, this, of, these, of these mighty works. I thank you, Lord, for your spirit and for your son. I thank you for this church in the middle of this community right here. And I pray for the leadership and everybody who's here today. Pray that you'll continue to use this body, this group, to be a powerful and living, ongoing witness and testimony of your love for the people around them in this community. In your heart for them. In your name we pray. Amen.